You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. This is a special edition of Some of My Best Friends are Kabbalists. I'm not here with Rabbi Nelson Gluck, who is in Ashkelon, uh and is getting his head back in place. Uh, but I'm here with another of my best friends, who I don't know if he would call himself a Kabbalist, but it's definitely somebody who is informed by the mystical tradition of Judaism and is more than just a dabbler in Jewish thought. And because he did the honor of listening to one of our programs on this uh, platform, specifically the Harusa, where Rabbi Warch and I locked horns about the proper method of uh, and, and approach to Memorial Day and, Jew and in American holidays in general. I'm talking about uh, my very, very close friend, Rabbi Mark Gottlieb. Uh, thanks, Mark, for once again gracing our platform. Um, and we've missed you. <laughs> well, it's, it's a pleasure to to be back on the program. Uh, I I think I'm very far from a Kabbalist, but I will say that one of my earliest uh, pulls towards Yiddishkeit, towards a life of um, Torah mitzvahs, was by an important modern Kabbalist, Rabbi Arya Kaplan of blessed memory. Uh, I used to to soak up and and drink from his his many, many works very eagerly and, and with a lot of gusto as a, as a young boy in Queens, New York. And uh, so certainly from that point on, uh, a, an observer, if not a, a practicing uh, Kabbalist or even, you know, deep disciple of, of Kabbalah, but certainly uh, I, uh, I'm honored to be here. Yeah, well, if you again, I, I always try to push my own product. But if you actually go to the Chavrusa program, the one before that was actually uh, informed by Arya Kaplan's um, little discussion about life on other planets. Ah, yes. Arya, so we actually discuss Arya Kaplan's ideas vis-a-vis -vis the Rambam and others, and we actually give Arya Kaplan his due. And considering what he was able to accomplish, not only uh, the 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 volumnity of what he was able yes. to do, but also the the style. And, and, and the success that he had in articulating it. And you're right, bringing a mystical perspective to, to the mikvah. Remember his, his, sure. his work on, from Francis Y about the secret sure. of the mikvah. But in general, his, you know, he, he actually, um, my good friend Rabbi Gluck, who isn't here with us, actually, uh, many, many years ago showed me that Arya Kaplan had started to uh, publish on meditation and Kabbalah in the Wiser Press. Yes. Um, where Those are the last volumes really i mean the the book on immortality and pre-adamic man was i think even after those volumes on on meditation and kabbalah but and, uh, and there you see that he was actually steeped in the thoughts of abalafia and others oh, yes, so he, he was right. a, and a he, real master and, and a practitioner from what i from what i heard you know meachore apargot as it were that there were students of his that that were studying with him, and and as you know, of course, he died at a very young age. Right, right. I knew, I, yeah, I knew his. Yeah, I was friendly with his teenage son, yes. who was used to hang around Mir Yeshiva when I was there. And um, yes, Kaplan's influence, his footsteps uh, will be felt. I look, even if all he did was uh, produce the Living Torah, 
that was already uh, that's already a, a one man major uh, accomplishment for one person. But uh, yeah, I would say it, what I found interesting was Kaplan's fascination with the Mayim Lowe's. He had a, which was interesting because you would think, you know, that's such a populist work that, you know, collects, you know, many, many different strands. So it's interesting that he really worked on that and really be became the um, the engine for the Mayam Lowe's to be translated. Uh, it was it was finished by others. But it's interesting that he really thought uh, he thought he wasn't just always thinking up there. He was allowing the ideas to come up there and, and come down. So you. You, you've done your cred. You can be some of my best friends are Kabbalists today. <laughs> okay. I can be one of your best friends and be the Kabbalist too. Well, the, if the you title... can be a Kabbalist, maybe, maybe I can be a Kabbalist. I don't That's know. Right. You're, right. More, you're more eclectic and more learned than I am. So Okay. Well, the point is the, t the title runs both ways. That's <laughs> okay. my point. Fair. But anyway, but thank you again for listening. And I know that what piqued your interest, and I knew it would, uh, was the connection to my argument, which was an argument there for a greater inculcation of American ideals. In other words, instead of just knowing about the day off, uh, can, you, can you respond to that a little bit and what your feelings were in terms of the program? Yeah, no, I was very moved. I was very moved by, by your argument that American Jews are really out of touch in a way that, that, that incapacitates them or, or, or certainly compromises their ability to both be makir tov in a deep sense to the United States. I don't mean in, in the platitudinous way of paying lip service, oh, America is a, is a, a wonderful country and Jews have done well there, but to try to understand more deeply the relationship between memory and history and tradition and one's Jewish identity, the place of religion in America, whether that's a source of, of strength for America, of course, in an America that is increasingly populated by nuns, you know, not nuns in habits, but mm -hmm. the nuns of the Pew study where you know, people are, are no longer attending church services, no longer saying they believe in God. You know, what is, we, we should talk about that. I think that that's a fascinating and, and very critical um, dimension to, to unpack what what is what makes America the Medina Shel Chesed that Rav Moshe Zatzal used to speak of often. Uh, what what character and quality in America allows America to be the safe haven for Jews and other minorities and other you know besieged peoples over over time in history. But I, I was very moved by your your argument, and yet. I, I found it to be so idealistic and so out of touch with the cultural and sociological dimensions of American orthodoxy today that it it almost seemed fanciful. In other words, I wished that the program that you suggested could be put into place, but there would have to be so many pr you know prior you know prerequisites, so so to speak, to actually get us to the point where young Jews, young men and women would go to cemeteries and decorate or, or honor or commemorate the fallen or or be involved in patriotic song or patriotic um, symbols and and celebrations. I, I, I wonder why you consider it fanciful, Mark, because look, you 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 were ahead of school in a in a, a lot in a number of prestigious places. Um, you don't think that uh, a number of you know, if it would be the Frisch and MTA and and SAR and some of these other 
places that lead the way uh, would would push for these things? You don't think within you don't I, think it could be it could ever be entrenched there? Look, let's start with the the obvious challenge that American society, by and large, has lost its sense of history, lost its its sense of of American identity, of patriotism. I mean, we we are still in the wake of BLM, the death of George Floyd, Antifa. We are we are reaping sort of or you know reaping the 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 challenges and and the at at moments it feels like it, it's a death knell to to the American spirit that you and I grew up with, even as Jews and even as you know increasingly religious Jews. Um, so I think the culture and the climate of America, forget Jewish America or Orthodox America, Orthodox Jewish America, but just America, it, it's it's so neged hazerim, it's so against the grain, it's so against the tide and against the current to think about America in those terms. I welcome that. And I personally am involved in efforts both myself and the Tikva Fund where I work to try and reclaim uh, an American tradition, a, a sense of American history that doesn't feel ashamed of our past in a uniform way. Obviously there are things that any American with a moral sense or with a sense of justice and righteousness can say were, were great sins, were errors, were, were more than errors, were sins. Yes, but that doesn't delegitimize America as a nation or American history as as an enterprise. And unfortunately, even saying that is pretty, you know, radical or pretty uh, controversial today because of the climate of the progressive left and 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 the deconstructionism that we find in American both academic and popular circles. So even the lip service that's let's say is done for um, the troops and even honoring the fallen soldiers, it always has to be done with the caveat. But what they were fighting for was imperialistic, uh, ugly garbage, right? In other words, yeah. that, right? I mean, in other words, we we honor the fallen, but we are disgraced by what they were fighting for. Yeah, in some ways, that, that certainly is is a very common articulation. And I guess I would take a well, step further. I would take a step back in some sense, Rova Vremel, and say that the sense of honoring the past, the sense of tradition, the sense of the American story and song and symbol, all of these things I think are very attenuated. It's lip service at best that's paid to things like the 4th of July. We know that it's it's a it's a holiday of commerce and a holiday of consumerism. How many, you know, you have to look at the Leon Casses and Amy Casses of blessed memory of the world of the Diana Shalves. They put together this wonderful anthology of American song, story, literature, speeches, sermons called What So Proudly We Hail. Uh, it's published by Intercollegiate Studies Institute, which is a, a wonderful organization. I personally benefited from, from their largesse and, and their educational programming uh, founded by basically William F. Buckley and, and Russell Kirk in the 50s, um, who are today considered, you know, very conservative or, you know, on the, on the 
not on the radical right, but certainly on the hard right um, in some in some circles. I have I have no I have no doubt that Buckley would be banned from uh, from a Twitter a Twitter account uh, today. Yeah, I mean, sure. But, I mean, Buckley but, but, said things. Yeah, in his day, that would be verboten today, and yes. that and that's you know frankly very sad and you know even tragic. Frank, I, I think for Americans and for Jews because I think we'll get to this point hopefully at some. At well, some, I'll let you. Uh, I'll let you get there now. I, I think what you were saying before, Mark, uh, was you know, and and, and and both Rabbi Warch and I, I think agreed, and I think I've, I've been on record for that as well. Is that it, it's an illusion to think that the woke culture is going to be so uh, uh, expansively welcoming oh. uh, our religion. We know already that that it's going to come down. And I guess this is what's really interesting, though, is is that a lot of the Jewish intellectuals of the 50s, the 40s, 50s, and 60s, were very happy with the lack of Christianity that was occurring, right? They were, they were very happy with, with, with the fact that church, uh, attendance in church was going down. It didn't- with one work. exception, one major exception, the Lubavitcher Rebbe of blessed memory. The Lubavitcher Rebbe, as, as you may know, spoke often about prayer in public schools. Obviously he didn't want a sectarian or denominational prayer, but he, he very much saw the American civic ethos being tied to the traditions of morality that he ultimately thought could not be separated from religion, could not be separated from the host nation's Christianity, uh, its culture, and its faith. And I think the, the Lubatra Rebbe in that way was light years ahead of many of his colleagues and peers that still had a vision of Christianity that was jaundiced to say the least, and and maybe, you know, more more virulently critical, you know, someone like Rabbi Eliezer Berkovitz, who was, you know, hailed as a modern Orthodox thinker, you know, in some ways on the progressive side with his, you know, works Torah Min Shemaim, hated Christianity, hated, hated, hated Christianity. But Christianity was the source, was the source of secularism because it took the body and and made such a a grave of the human body and, and a Gnostic, um, almost demonization of the material and the physical world. Now, whether this is a fair characterization of Christianity or not, that's another question. But someone like a Rabbi Eliezer Berkovitz saw Christianity as, as absolutely poisonous to culture. The Lubavitcher Rebbe did not agree. Uh-huh. So even though the Ravavitrevi pushed um, uh, Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach for the Noachites, you don't think he was, uh, you don't think he felt that that would ultimately lead to rejection of Jesus as, as savior? Look, obviously, he, look, there's no question that that he would have welcomed that and, and that his campaign, the Mitzvah of, of Zion Mitzvah B'nai Noach, was more of an accurate embodiment or a full embodiment of the ideal of, of religion for the Gentiles than dogmatic traditional Christianity, certainly with doctrines like the Trinity and the Incarnation. But I think, I think the Lubavitcher Rebbe was a more subtle sociological thinker, more of a subtle uh, a pragmatist in the sense that he knew that as many of the founders of America knew, even those that were deists, uh, they knew that one needed religion as a bulwark for society and for culture uh, to be defended against the vices that you know human 
the human heart that is unfettered by religion or unrestrained so, so in other, by religion. So in other words, he might have been able to split. In other words, obviously he was very aware of the excesses into the uh, into the horrors that Christianity wreaked upon the Jews uh, throughout European history. But he, you're telling me that he probably felt that in the United States, because of the um, this, the the glory or the grandeur of its founders' ideal of freedom of religion, that a strong Christianity would not morph into this monstrous oppressor. Right. No, not only that, it wouldn't morph into this monstrous oppressor. That without it, without a strong Christian or at least traditional monotheistic religion, there would be no protection from the advances of, of a rabid secularism. There would be no protection, both in terms of the population's own moral standing and their own habits and practices, and eventually in the form of government and legislation that would be less sympathetic or less open to religious practice and religious liberty and, mm -hmm. and more aggressively, doctrinarily critical of religion. Uh -huh. um, yeah. So I don't think the Lubavitcher Rebbe would be surprised that in San Francisco in the early 21st century, there would be a, a motion in the city council to ban circumcision because it's considered immoral. Mm -hmm. um, that would he that would not surprise the Rebbe as a as a likely outcome of a of a secularist rab, aggressively secularist uh, America. You, you, you know, again, I have. You know, we, I've talked about the Lava Trebi often with you and with others, uh, definitely an incredible, important character uh, and a person and an influence and a teacher of the 20th century. But I know there's another, um, you know, another great mentor in a sense of yours, although I don't think you ever studied from him. I had this host to, to actually hear him a number of times, and, and both of us are familiar with his works. Let's talk about the Rov, Rov Soloveitchik. Um, you know, he has a lot of negative statements about Christianity, and he talks about what he's uh, he fears uh, interfaith uh, meetings. He talked a lot about uh, when he talked about even a beautiful little piece when he speaks about the cacophony of Jewish prayer that it's so much different than the uh, measured um, orchestral like. Uh, church service. And he talks about uh, how we need to guard against uh, borrowing and, and absorbing from Christianity. Um, but I'm sure, because what was his take on it? I'm sure it was a lot more nuanced than, than, than that, right? Sure. No, look, I think the Rav, Rav Salvechik is a, is a fascinating, you know, figure of, of greatness for, for us who identify as engaged Orthodox. But I think the Rav is someone that could be studied with great profit, even if you feel that you're more in the Haredi camp or in the Torah-only camp, however you might call yourself. I, I think you're right, so right, Rav Ramel, to, to identify Rav Soloveitchik as a, as a major thinker in this area. Um, and the very essay which you refer to, the 1964 essay, Confrontation, in which the Rav famously severely limits the possibility of Jewish Christian dialogue to those areas that are secular, what he calls secular. Now, the Rav, in a footnote in that essay, makes the very, in some sense, um, you know, understandable, not to say obvious, but the very clear 
understanding that for a from for a god fearing man or woman what is truly secular what what actually is purely secular and after limiting the 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 realm the space of dialogue to areas that would be understood as purely human or secular not religious which he clearly um forbids or 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 certainly circumscribes very severely he goes on to say but for the from jew you know what truly even your views of economics your views of of anthropology your views of poverty ostensibly things that would be secular or human are always going to be tinged through the aspaklaria of torah as they, as they should be so it's not a stira within the the rav but it's a tension which really highlights the larger tension in that essay between ger betoshav that for rav solovechik the jew relates to his host society whether you call it america or you call it christian society or christian culture the rav was born you know in in a in a part of khaslavich um which is you know the border of poland white russia a catholic and and christian between catholic and and russian orthodox uh that's the kind of home he came from but when he came to america this tension between being a part of the culture seeing oneself as a citizen of the culture while also seeing oneself as an alien that paradox or that dialectic of gerbatosha that is the central dialectic in the rav's thought and and when we apply it to american citizenship or american culture or american society we're we're very acutely aware that this is a very difficult dialectic to negotiate and you so know, mark, mark i i have to have to interrupt you just for a second because sure. you know i you know i know a lot about the rov's youth and Kaslovich and uh, about the rebellion Prashana and of course rov moshe salvechik and the whole history there but i've never heard anyone uh talk about that the rov was somehow open to christian influences in in Kaslovich. i mean i know no, that no no on the contrary <laughs> i'm <laughs> suggesting yeah I'm, I'm suggesting that that part of the rov's views of christianity are very much a function not only of the thinkers that he read people like Karl Barth or Soren Kierkegaard but they were also very um viscerally imprinted on his neshama through his his childhood and life in in places that were not the most hospitable uh, Jews i don't i don't think and, i don't think his his attitude his attitude to christianity is more nuanced than than i think you let on but i i think it's fundamentally suspicious it's so fundamentally so in other words there's an and theologically critical you know a uh, so man is is in some sense a critique of of a kind of christianity uh it's it's also uh a a kind of critique of of a form of secularism so you know the rub i think had you know complex views on on Christianity, but mainly, mainly suspicious and skeptical views. Although he probably, again, did sit with a number of Christian thinkers when he was in university. I'm sure he was well, quite... He certainly was, you know, a reader <laughs> of, of works like Barth and Kierkegaard, which were very much in in the air in Berlin in, in the 20s um, and early 30s. And, you know, it, it's, it goes without saying People get upset when you say the rub was influenced by Kierkegaard, or some people get upset. 
if, you know, important people in my life, important people in the life of Klai Yisrael are uncomfortable with that formulation. But there's no question that he read these thinkers with great profit and with great, you know, with a great eye, a discerning eye, but with great value. But that doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't adjudicate the question of, of what he thought about Christianity. And I, I actually want to take a step back before even discussing his views on Christianity. Just America, without, you know, without the religious dimension of, of Christian, because America today is a post-Christian nation. It's not a Christian nation today. And any, any Jew, I think, who, who still believes that America is a Christian nation at its heart and soul is just missing missing the times or, or just missing the signs of, of the reality of where we're at as, as a post-Christian culture and a post-Christian nation. But the Rub, one could talk about the Rub's views on America, you know, little, there are these little vignettes, you know, Rub Herschel Schachter um, speaks, everybody knows this now, that the Rub would go back to Boston on Thursdays and he would try to leave earlier on the Thursday of Thanksgiving so that he could be home, presumably to have a Thanksgiving meal with his with his Rebbitzin and and the family. Um, you know, he the, made a he made it a point that his students should know that he yes. was celebrating Thanksgiving. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, at the same time, with that deep affection for American tradition, that anyone celebrating Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving is the quintessential American holiday. Uh, the rub also had a, a way of being obje- more objective. And and more um, a, a, a gare in the sense of being able to, as a third party, so to speak, evaluate America, evaluate its strengths and its limitations. The Rav has a famous. It was a drusha that he delivered in the fifties, probably originally, but it got worked over a number of times into the sixties and maybe even to the seventies on Parshas Noach, where he basically analyzes Dora Mabel and Dora Flaga as the contemporary battle between East and West, between America, the, the nation of individualism and the rugged individualist, which is very much, he sees a, a, a kind of representation of the Dor Hamabul with Hamas and, and the Arias and, and personal lusts and personal indulgence uh, setting the cultural tone versus the kind of totalitarianism and the one worldism of communism that is represented in the Dora Flaga. Famously, uh, has a famous parish on the, sure. the on the Dora Flaga and the, the you know the the door of of Migdal Bavel. Um, but there, the Rav doesn't equate America and the and Soviet Russia. Of course, he knew that America was a much better better place for Jews for 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 human beings for freedom than the Soviet Union. But in that drush, at least homiletically, he's able to kind of see the strengths and limitations and the dangers of, of the American ideal of individualism run amok. What are the dangers of that? It's kind of what Solzhenitsyn in his famous Harvard address um, in 1979, when everybody thought he was going to severely criticize Russia, where he had been exiled, basically, and finally you know, kicked out. Instead, he turns his, his, his great literary weapons against America and the West for being too indulgent for being too individualistic for being too uh, too too much in the spirit of license and uh, and legalism um, both license and legalism which he sees are two sides of the same coin a, 
a lack of a moral compass, a lack of a moral center. So the Rav is able to dish out his critique of America as well in, the, you know, in, in an almost even-handed way with his critique of, of Russia, of Soviet Union, of atheist communistic so Soviet Union. But there's no way that the Rav thought these were equal, um, you know, equal entities in terms of their value for the world and for Yiddishkeit. Um, but I think it is fascinating that the Rav was able to, you know, celebrate Thanksgiving, see the limitations in America, see the power, the strengths of America, see the strengths, you know, the and the, the deficits of, mostly the deficits when it came to the Soviet Union. But, you know, one could see if one wanted to be very even-handed that you know, there was the, the space race and, you know, cosmonauts. You know, he talks about cosmonauts. In, I know, in he, talks about, too. he talks about Sputnik. Yeah, he talks about, yeah. he talks about Sputnik there. He talks yeah. about the... And the cosmonaut not seeing God when he looks out the window of... Uh, of his spaceship. I, I love his uh, his Sputnik discussion where he talks about how the Ishalocha is like Sputnik in a way that there's a booster engine that gets him into the orbit of Halacha. Right. But once he's in that orbit, he doesn't move. In other words, you need your heart to get involved to something, but in the world of Halacha itself, it has its own uh, status and it's a stasis in a way that it doesn't change. And that was the how, <laughs> that's the way the Rav looked at a satellite. Um, you know, I know one of the things that you told me off uh, the record when before we started recording was that you liked my uh, use of the Rambam in Hilchas Melochim uh, in my debate with Rabbi Warch. I mentioned that Rambam, uh, and I wanted to build upon that the same way the Rambam says that the rise of Christianity and Islam uh, were uh, things that were machshir, the, 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 the civilized planet, for the ideas of a mitzvah, the ideas of a Mashiach, the ideas of Geula, and that when it comes, it's now not going to be this overwhelming, uh, like a, a space beam coming alien, from that space. Right? An alien, alien, an alien, no, right? But it's actually going to be something. Human life. It's right. going to be something that the world was already cooking about and talking yeah, about, with. thinking yes. about. And yeah. would, would only just clarify, as the Rambam says, the doubts that people would have. This is the Rambam's, and we know, of course, that this section of the Rambam has been censored because of the negative things he says about Jesus. I'm going to read a little bit of it in a minute here. But one of the things I know you said you liked that I wanted to add to the Rambam, um, uh, the idea that perhaps the, the same way the Rambam was so taken, as he says, rov ha'olam, is now involved in Christianity, which he feels must have a purpose, the great American footprint, which has in a certain sense taken over the planet, I would, I would argue, and I did argue, that also it serves a purpose in a messianic one in terms of being machshir the planet for the eventual uh, revelation of the great goodness of God. So I know that when I said that, you told me that this was uh, connected to some a project that you've been working on, uh, and a project that, uh, interestingly, was also, in a way, inspired uh, by that Rambam. Uh, and, and maybe you want to talk about that in the minutes that we have uh, and the time we have remaining. I know you've been working on a, on a sure. major project. Uh, so why don't you sure. tell us about that? Sure. Well, what I found about your comments that was so striking and, and thought-provoking was this idea that America is in the image of the Rambam there in Hilchus Malachim, you know, America is becoming the 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 real bastion or the final the final bastion if you look at Europe today and secularization across Europe and, and Islam to a certain extent as well. But America is the center for world Christianity, although there's a lot going on in, in the sub you know, sub 
I would and say Aust- sub-Saharan Australia. world, Australia, Australia, yeah. Africa, South America, you know, Indonesia. But America still, I think, has the 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 concentration of Christianity and Christians. And and the question, you know, is America such a safe haven for the Jews because it's the land of the free and because it it has this tradition of tolerance and pluralism? as some might might have it, or is the, the key to understanding the Jews' good fortune in America more tied up with believing Christians than, than secular Americans? And I think this is a very fascinating question. I, I think the question is, has a, I won't say a simple answer, but I think it has a straightforward answer that, of course, the the, the well-being of the Jews is much more tied up with believing Christians than it is with secular Americans, because I think increasingly, as we've just seen in the past couple of weeks, when it comes to Israel and when it comes to anti-Zionism, which is often just a, a, a facade for anti-Semitism, it's not always, but it, it often is. Uh, I, I think that the 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 Jews' well-being is going to be much more tied with the success of Christians, of believing Christians, than it is with secular, increasingly secular, and increasingly, you know, identity politics-driven Americans. And and this recalls an amazing passage in Rav Yaakov Emden in in the series of of his comments, but. The, the, the most ambitious formulation is found in his, uh, his comments on Seder Olam Rabba Bezutra. Uh, it's also found a follow-up in, in his Seder, in his Sefer Shimush. And as we were discussing, there's a parish on Avos that also echoes this on, on Machlokas L'Shem Shemayim. L'Shem Shemayim, his, his, his magnificent parish on Avos, yeah. So, Very- if I could just very bolderdize Rav Yaakov Emden a, a little bit for the sake of time, basically Rav Yaakov Emden says that that Jesus, who he thought was a Jew and a a faithful Jew, to boot, was a um, was a tova kafula. He uses this powerful Russian tova kafula. Jesus was tova kafula for the Jewish people because it protected. It protected the Jews in terms of Christians caring for Jewish texts, for preserving Tanakh. Now, of course, Rav Yaakov Emden is not naive. He knows that texts were sometimes manipulated for proselytizing purposes, that texts were, were, were burned. Tanakhs and Talmuds, more often Talmud, rabbinical work, was burned because of, of, of the Jewish content. And yet, he still says that Jesus was a double gift of goodness to the to the Jews because of the protection that that Christianity as a society has already given and what it will continue to give that he saw Christians as a much more natural ally to Jews to believing Jews than non-believing Christians or or atheists um he was talking in the immediate context of this work about the Sabbateans, the Frankists in Poland, the offshoot, the Christian offshoot of the Sabbateans who he fought, you know, tooth and nail um, 
his whole life, uh, even going so far as to, to accuse another great Godel, Rav Yonas and Ibishitz, of being a closet Sabbatean, but that Christians would, if they would, the more they'd understand the Jewish nature of Jesus and his true mission, which was to preserve Torah, but to bring Torah, the Torah values, the Zion Mitzvah Ben Noach specifically to the Gentile nations, to the previously pagan nations, this would be an ongoing tova for the Jewish people. I, I think Rav Yaakov Endin is very prescient here. Some might consider this naive. I consider this prescient. Because if you look today at the world stage, at the geopolitics of, of the world in the 21st century, the natural alliance, I believe, is between faithful Christians and faithful Jews. And Jews, to the extent that they see themselves as, as part of the ancient and everlasting Jewish people, Netzach Yisrael lo Yishaker, I think Christians will be increasingly likely to support Jews, whether it's the state of Israel or just Jews in general. And I think that that is really the, and I don't mean it for merely pragmatic reasons, but I mean it for, for deeper reasons, that there should be that recognition on the part of Jews that there has been some major changes in terms of the church, the Catholic church, Protestantism, certainly evangelical Protestantism, although it's, it's more complicated now than it was 20 years ago when you didn't have a, a progressive, you didn't really have a strong progressive anti-Israel evangelical um, community. Today you do, it's growing. But even putting um, Israeli politics aside, this larger theme in Rav Yaakov Emden is very powerful to me uh, of the, the kind of alliance, the natural alliance between believing Christians and believing Jews. This is not, Rav Yaakov Emden is not calling for ecumenicism in a slipshod or sloppy fashion to say that it's all one thing, although his, his arguments about Jesus and, and Paul are radical in their own way. Um, beyond saying that Jesus is a tova kafula, but his whole theory of, of the origins of Christianity are quite radical in that the claim that that the, Christ, the early Christians really had no intention of abolishing Judaism or saw themselves as Jews and even saw their goal and their, their, their evangelism as an extension of their Judaism and that they were very careful of Yaakov Emden says not to offer a Gentile a bris milah because that's not, right. uh, that's not al pi halacha. And that Shabbos, they didn't want the Gentiles to keep Shabbos because goyish Shabbos is chayv misa. Now, whether this is scholarly, you know, can it stand up to scholarly scrutiny? Probably not. But the larger, almost, I would say, political theological strategy of Jews and Christians being allied is very profound and it's very prescient. Yeah, again, you know, you say a lot there. And of course, Rabbi Yaakov Emden is something, is someone that I have been involved with for most of my uh, mature life. Uh, and I've done a lot of reading uh, in his, his incredible over of, of material. I would say, Mark, that I think that this that this, this is a very famous, these are very famous passages that are quoted often because of, as you say, because of how startling they are. But I don't know if Ryakovendan's life, uh, in terms of his interpersonal relationships with the Christians, uh, in any Absolutely. way, Bruce, my, my great uh, my great teacher and my my Rebbe, my great teacher, my great mentor, uh, Rabbi. 
Jacob J. Schachter, uh, who I, I think about with gratitude and, and love every day, really, uh, has a wonderful article where he says exactly what you've just said, basically. So Baruch Shekivanta. Okay. Uh, and Rabbi Schachter is, is really probably... Because it seems like your perspective is not that positive about change happening, with, whether it's in the Jewish world, recognizing the ideals of what America was built on and acting upon it, or any real shift in the United States well, away I, I, from, away from, because, you know, other, uh, other right wing thinkers think that the pendulum might swing back, especially if, you know, uh, but, but I'm not sure. Well, I'll, I'll say this, and, and with this, we can close. It's a good way to, to, to end where we really began. I, I'm staking my, my life as an educator professionally on the bet that we can educate young Jews. I, I, that's what we do. That's what I do. I spend most of my waking life working with young Jewish students on American history, on American identity, on, on Hashkafa, on Jewish law, showing that there are deep resonances here. I'm, I'm suggesting, though, that for the larger American landscape, the larger culture, I think that's probably lost. It, it, that's pessimism, but it's realism, because it's, it's really a reflection of where we are as a culture. Could it swing back? We could create a vanguard of these wonderful, you know, B'nai and B'nos Torah, Jewish kids that understand the meaning of America, that understand the Hebraic spirit of America. Yes, but that's a big project. And we're just starting that project at Tikva. And we've got a long way to go. But the larger society, I think it's Hollywood and, you know, and, and Wall Street in the crassest of ways. And we have to carve out little communities, the, the, the confessional tribes, what Rabbi Jonathan Sachs used to call the Jeremiah option or the creative minority option. And we'll leave it at that. That'll be a teaser for the next conversation. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.